Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast, where we cover life-changing books and hopefully turn it into a life-changing podcast for you folks. Everything happens for a reason. That is an unquestioned and socially acceptable thing to say. You know, something bad happens, we hear this. And, you know, maybe it's like technically correct because nothing happens without something causing it. But what this is really saying is that, you know, life is just gonna happen. We don't really have any control over it and don't really worry about it and you better get used to getting fucked by the long dick of life. Because as Thomas Hobbes so wisely said, life is short, nasty, and brutish. Now this concept is found both in Islamic philosophy with the concept of inshallah, God willing. If God wants it, it'll happen. Or in the Lion King world with Hakuna Matata. Or in America where we say that stuff, everything happens for a reason. And basically we just mean, shut up and it's accept your lot in life, dick. Or not. What if there was actually a different way? What if, like a professional investor making smart decisions, we can actually claw our way up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, decision by decision, until we reach the top. Self-actualized, rich, jacked, dozens of goats, two or three more guns than necessary, hundreds of girlfriends. Uh, uh just kidding. See, if you say just kidding, it's kind of like no offense, totally fine. But what if you can actually stack the odds in your favor? Instead of getting scalped by life, what if there was a system we could follow that would, would, would provide us with a steady supply of enemy scalps that we could then add to our ever-growing coat of scalps? What if? And that, my friends, is what our next hero, the great and powerful Annie Duke, might just have figured out. Annie Duke got a bachelor's degree in Columbia University, and she got some, some shit in English and psychology, and then even went on to UPenn, a very prestigious school, and almost earned her master's in cognitive psychology. She's 26 years old, her future was mapped out. She was so good that she even was awarded the National Science Foundation Fellowship. I believe the technical term is she was a motherfucking beastress, female beast. But she left it all behind. In a quarter-life crisis, she dropped out of her master's program. She did the unthinkable and got married. And she moved to a small town in Montana where she was quickly accosted by reality 
that uh, I need some fucking money. Her brother, some guy with a name I, I didn't take a note of, was a professional poker player. So one day, Annie Duke was lamenting to him, you know, complaining about the backwoods nature of her new home and, and needing money. And he says, hey, I, I know you need some money. May I interest you in some gambling? Now she was pretty easy to convince. 26 years old, had just forsaken all of society's plans for her. And so she responds with, why, why yes. Yes, I would be interested in some of this gambling you speak of. And that is how she got into poker. Her brother, professional poker player, but also a brother, didn't want to, you know, train her too well. He, he didn't want to onboard her with a Six Sigma process or anything. So he just, using fucking crayon and a napkin, wrote her a list of hands that she should play. Now, this was back in 1994 where, uh, you know, I, I, I can't even remember. I don't think they had cars back then. Really, it maybe had TVs. So, uh, you know, no, no problem. Like, all he had in his life was a fucking crayon and a napkin. So, you know, he's doing his best. Don't get mad at him. But on a crayon and a napkin, she embarks on her journey of poker. She enters the smoky dungeon bar called the Crystal Lounge in Billings, Montana. With the plan, yeah, I'll just play some poker as a hobby until I return to academic life and resume the societal mandate of being normal. Unfortunately, or fortunately, Annie Duke would never be normal again. She embarks on a 20-year professional poker career from this bar, the Crystal Lounge. Now, I'm kind of a cheeky bastard, and so I wanted to see if I could find any funny reviews from this bar, because it's still a living thing. It's, it's still a bar. And uh, I did find some good reviews. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But uh, kind of a rough crowd on some nights. Two stars. This is the definition of a dump. One star. Bathrooms have puke and piss all over them, and it is the most poorly run poker room I've ever been to. One star. My personal favorite review, I called them three times. They manually denied the call the first and second time, and then on the third time they answered and mouth-breathed for 40 seconds before they hung up on me. I would give zero stars if I could. One star. So picture this, this little woman, you know, um, and, and no offense, not at all. Went to good schools, got a master's degree. You know, she's as out of place as Derek Zoolander being a male model with a coal miner father, but she just goes to this fucking smoky ass, piss covered puke bar and starts playing poker and armed with her fucking napkin and a crayon. She starts winning. And as a good brother, pressure your sister to do whatever you want. Quickly, 
Her brother prompted her to enter the 1994 World Series of Poker uh, and enter into a few tournaments. Well, within the first month, with just some hard work, ingenuity, and a cram, she won $70,000, decided to move to Las Vegas and pursue a professional poker career. She went on to have a distinguished 20-year career as a professional poker player. Um, a couple highlights of her career. She won a bunch of money. But my personal just, this is when I just realized that we're dealing with a different fucking breed here. Uh, in the 2000 World Series of Poker, so year 2000, it's a scary year, computers are gonna forget how to work. She was nine months pregnant with her third child and she placed 10th out of a total of 512 players, which was the second highest finish by a woman in the event's history. Now, you know, I, I, I honestly did not do a good job paying attention during health class to the women's anatomy section, but I'm pretty sure that nine months pregnant, I, I think she's done. Like, uh, she, she was risking her water breaking and, you know, pissing whatever that stuff is on the fucking floor on national television. I mean, I, I picture her thought processes like, you know, what's what's the worst that happens? I, you know, I, I piss baby juice on the floor and have a fucking kid in the middle of a nationally televised poker tournament. Um, yes, Andy Duke. Yes, that is the fucking worst. You know, I, I'm not a lady, but, um, you know, I think the only relevant life experience I might have to add to this is I am lactose intolerant. And one day I had... Um, you know, because I also, I'm obsessed with lifting weights and trying to get jacked and stuff. And so I had a, a protein shake purchased at, at DePaul at the, at the cafeteria. And I did not do as good of a job as I typically do testing for lactose. You know, I typically looked at it and see, ooh, ingredients, milk protein, mmm. Because that means it's, it's whey protein concentrate, which is, has lactose. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shit myself. And... Um, I did not do that, so I had an interview. It was a phone interview for my first internship of my life. The management fellow's office, which is a, a prestigious business program I was part of, they organized the interview, and it, they, they reserved a conference room for me. And so I get on this interview, and now being lactose intolerant, you start to get a little bit of like a, a gut feel, <laughs> shut the fuck up, about, um, Oh God, I, d I done ate some lactose that I did not know about. This is going to be a problem. So I'm halfway through, you know, what's, what's your greatest strength? Well, I just, I just work too hard. And uh, I feel the gurgle. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, well, that's not good. Da, 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 da. It's gurgling in there. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, fuck. Well, that's a problem. But I stay relatively calm, cool, and collected. But then it gets worse. You know, it feels like it feels like someone turned all of my stomach to diarrhea and pumped my ass up with a bike pump. And uh, you know, I have to just walk around with that that fucking chaos inside of me as I as I'm answering a question. And um, I, I get to a point. I'm not. I'm not even fucking joking. I, I wish I was joking. I get to a point where I give in. You know, I lose all sphincter control. My, my butthole, uh, it's just like a dead circle. It means nothing anymore. And 
And the only thing keeping me from shitting my pants in the fucking management fellow's office is my butt cheeks. But luckily, got pretty strong butt cheeks. So I just ended up just releasing like a tiny bit of pressure uh, with a fart, finished the interview, made it to the toilet. But I can only imagine her situation's like quadruple that bad. I mean, because at least, you know, if the unthinkable outcome happened for me... I, I, I could at least like kind of slink away, you know, pretend to be sick, throw my shitty underwear away. But I mean, you can't do that if you shit out a person, Annie Duke. What the fuck? But Annie Duke don't care. Again, motherfucking beastress right here. Um, over her career, she earned $4 million. $4 million in a game that when played in a casino, should have worse odds than chance. So, uh, you know, the logical question here is, what the fuck's this lady doing? Teach me your ways, Annie Duke. Well, good news, motherfuckers. That is what this book is. Thinking and bets, Annie Duke. You know, because over the years, she realized that poker was just a laboratory to study how people make decisions. Because a hand, you know, it takes about two minutes, but there could be 20 decisions in there and there's immediate feedback. But it's tricky because winning and losing is not perfectly correlated to success. And so what began in the smoky puke and piss covered bar, she soon turned into a poker career and you know, I, I will say probably because relationships are important, probably due to her brother's connections, she apprenticed under world-class poker players who taught her what a bet really is. And so what she just defines a bet as is a decision about an uncertain future. Well, hey, that's pretty fucking applicable right here. That sounds like any decision. And she thought so too. So now she coaches people about decision making. You know, big ballers, hedge fund managers, uh, you know, coaches, professional poker players. And, you know, one of the things that she recognizes is that it, it really is hard to make good decisions. But the lessons that she learned in those hazy poker rooms, you know, reeking of piss, she comes home and her husband won't even touch her because she smells like cigarettes, puke, and piss. But the lesson she learned was that a little improvement in decision-making over time compounds. Now, I was a financial advisor, and so we had this crazy thought experiment that we did not think of, but we coached our clients on. And some Chinese emperor guy, it's, it's, a, it's a story, listen up. Some Chinese emperor guy asked one of his slaves, now, if I'm if I'm telling this not to the internet, I always say I always say employees, but he ain't got no employees, bitch. He's got slaves, and you know, hey, slavery is super bad. I'm very very against it, but I gotta be period appropriate here. So he asked one of his slaves, "Hey, slave, I got a chessboard right here. Now I'm gonna take a grain of rice and put it on the first thing of the chessboard, the first square." The second day, I'm going to take two grains of rice and put it on the second square. 
the, the third day, I'm going to double it again, and I'm going to put four grains of rice on the third square. Now, slave, I demand you go do the math for me and come back with the requisite grains of rice each day, or I will kill you. Well, turns out, slave got killed, because little did the emperor know, he had no concept of compound interest. And by the end of the chessboard, that next, that, that last square is over one billion grains of rice. And that is the power of compounding. And that is why if we can get even slightly better, you know, let's say you listen to this podcast and you get 4% better at making decisions, bitch, compounded over life. That's fucking gold, homie. Anyways, I apologize. I, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, a lot of Polo G, a lot of boozy badass, a lot of good rap. Forgive me, Tim Lambesis. So we are going to spend the rest of this podcast deeply dissecting how we can make better decisions so we can get rich, jacked, and do whatever the fuck we want to do all the time. So she starts with the idea just lays it out there, just dick on the table. It seems to be a theme, like I'm, I might try that, but um, there are exactly two things that determine how our lives turn out. Are you ready? The quality of our decisions, hint, hint, our bets, and luck. And then she gives a great example of the worst decision ever, question mark, Super Bowl 2015, Seattle Seahawks are down four, 26 seconds left, second down, one yard line. They have this this player called Marshawn Lynch. I don't really know very much about football, but I did watch a motivational YouTube video and Marshawn Lynch talks about the, the benefits of beast mode. You know, beast mode applies all the time. So, you know, everybody expected a run. I mean, you give Marshawn the ball and dude, for one yard, I mean, he could run through a pack of lions. Instead, they passed. It was intercepted, and everybody fucking hated them. Especially the coach named Pete. People were extremely pissed at Pete. There were titles called the worst play in Super Bowl history, question mark, and other things, you know, calling for his death and, and stuff like that. But a few people defended him because when you actually run the numbers, I mean, the odds of an interception in that situation were like 2%. There was also some clock management decisions because like, let's say that, that you run and then you got one timeout and then, you know, you might have two plays. But if you, if you throw first and you have an incomplete pass, well, you might get three plays. But the public didn't care. Fuck Pete, Pete's a bitch. And why Why did so many people so strongly believe that Pete was a stupid ass bitch? It's because the play didn't work. Let's imagine a different reality where the play worked. I I'm gonna throw out some headlines. Strategic genius Pete Carroll picks unpredictable play, turns it into touchdown. Everybody in Seattle rejoices. But in the poker world, 
Pete just got unlucky. Pete Carroll was the victim of our tendency to equate the quality of a decision with the quality of its outcome. In poker, players have a word for this, and they call it resulting. And that is equating how good of a decision you made with how good of an outcome just happened from your decision. So how can we avoid the trap of resulting? She starts out with a thought experiment. Um, Take a moment to imagine your best decision. Now your worst decision. She guesses that the best one had a really good result and the worst one had a really bad result. And she might be right. Because humans, we have this innate tendency to draw an overly tight relationship between results and decision quality. And that affects our decisions every day, potentially with far-reaching catastrophic consequences. In the investing world, we'd have a saying that a good decision with a bad outcome can still be a good decision. And this brings us into what might or might not, I don't know, I'm, I'm taking a bet that it might be a common topic on this goddamn podcast called Game Theory. So there's this guy, John, John von Neumann. In addition to everything else he accomplished, which I didn't note down what else he accomplished, but I think it was a lot. He was also the father of game theory. And game theory is the theory of games and economic behavior. Von Neumann modeled game theory off of a stripped down version of poker. But why the fuck should we even care about this? Like, okay, just cause this just John guy loves just jerking around with games, like what the hell does that even matter? I'll tell you why it matters. It's because the great Annie Duke has drawn the analogy that I have bought into that life is like poker, not chess. So funny story, a little intellectual competition here. Jacob Bronowski, some famous mathematician guy from some time, was in a car with John von Neumann. And this Jacob guy asked John, Game theory guy. Oh, old chap, what do you study? He's like, oh, I study games. And Bronowski, not game theory guy, puffs his chest out and says, I myself am a bit of a chess player. Games like what? And uh, I'm going to quote von Neumann's response. Uh, No, no. Chess is not a game. Chess is a well-defined form of computation. You may not be able to work out the answers, But in theory, there must be a solution, a right procedure in any position. Now, real games are not like that at all. Real life is not like that. Real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of asking yourself, what is the other man going to think I mean to do? And that is what games are all about in my theory. So after just completely destroying the dignity of his of his cab passenger mathematician and chess player Jacob Bronkowski, whatever the hell's name is, this bitch goes on to create game theory. And it's interesting. The analogy chess. So ch- chess actually contains really no hidden information and very little luck. 
I mean, the pieces are all there for both players to see. You know, the pieces can't randomly appear or disappear from the board. I mean, they can't get moved from one position to another by chance. You know, one rolls a dice after uh, after each turn, um, and you know, if, if it rolls wrong, your bishop gets taken away. I mean, if you lose a game at chess, it's because there were better moves that you didn't make. And it's why computers basically can always beat humans at chess. You can, theoretic, you can theoretically go back and figure out exactly where you made mistakes. So, you know, chess in all of its strategic complexity isn't really a great model for decision-making in life, where most of our decisions involve hidden information, you know, a much greater influence of luck. And, and this creates a challenge that does not exist in chess. You know, identifying the relative contributions of the decisions we make versus luck in how things turn out. Now, poker, in contrast, is a game of incomplete information. It's a game of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty over time. Not coincidentally, that is close to the definition of game theory. You know, valuable information remains hidden. And, and there's also an element of luck in any outcome. I mean, you could have pocket aces in poker and you could make the best possible decision at every point and still lose to some somebody who doesn't have hands because you don't know what the next cards are going to be. And then another added wrinkle is that once the game is finished, you, you can try to learn from the results, but it's really hard to separate the quality of your decisions from the influence of luck. And, you know, we, we really want life to be like chess. I don't know if you guys are Game of Thrones fans. Uh, we, we partook briefly, and then, at least for me, I, I, I wish that that kind of uh, aggressive guy who's the author would, uh, I wish he would just finish the books. So we haven't finished the last seasons, but um, if you guys remember, there's a character called Varys, the spider and he's this little fat eunuch but he's pulling the master chess plans and solving the computation of life we want life to be like that like there's this allure that if i sit in a chair long enough i can figure out exactly what i need to do and if i think hard enough i can actually win but that is just not reality Reality is unpredictable. You know, reality is a lot closer to Game of Thrones character Cersei Lannister fucking her brother, Jaime Lannister, and then Jaime gets his arm chopped off and is learning left-handed sword fighting from an alcoholic outlaw with greasy hair. I mean, that's life. There's really no way to predict stuff. And one book that we will cover on here is, is The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb super interesting book basically he puts forth that you know all of history is shaped by these black swan events these random ass events and so any strategy and he talks about an investment strategy but i mean if you think about it investing is really betting it's making decisions which is actually life so like your life strategy should take advantage of positive black swans so those unpredictable events for the positive, so like investing in Google when there were two two people in the company, and then minimizing the negative 
impacts of these negative black swans. So, I don't know, random ass pandemic that happens. Your strategy should at least have some sort of uh, buffer against that. So maybe, you know, you got some extra ammo, some guns, some food, some goats, some chickens, and you live on 30 acres. Hey, who knows? But we'll, we'll cover that. I'm not going to go too deep into that. But if we buy that life is like poker, well, maybe we should listen to goddamn Orphan Annie over here who mastered poker. And thus, the fucking secret to decision making in real life. And she does not disappoint. You know, early on in the book, she just, she mic drops with the sentence, the quality of our lives is the sum of decision quality plus luck. The quality of our lives. So how happy we are, how financially well off we are, how healthy, how jacked, all that stuff is the sum of decision quality plus luck and that is why chess isn't a great analogy because in chess luck is limited in its influence i mean it's easier to read the results as a signal to decision quality i mean basically who's ever better in chess is gonna win you know it's kind of like jujitsu versus boxing um you know in jujitsu it's really just like chess like whoever is the better with all of the different combinations of various traits in jiu-jitsu you know flexibility strength uh just general lack of concern for their own life um will win all the like a black belt in jiu-jitsu will legitimately always beat a white belt in jiu-jitsu but in striking it's different you know a crazy meth-addled uh just street fighter can knock out the best boxer ever. And that's because boxing is a little bit more like life, apparently, if we're using this analogy. But I think it's interesting because I think we can all recognize that. You know, we think of that kid who killed it in high school, who killed it in college, and then got out in the work world and kind of floundered. Because if you think about it, school is kind of like chess. Okay, hey, these are the rules. You study, you get good grades, shut up when the bell rings you piss when the bell doesn't ring you have to raise your hand if you want to piss but then the real world you can piss whenever man i've left a very important meeting before to piss and no one said anything because real life is like poker so how do we deal with life i mean do we just give up because do we just have that inshallah or that hakuna matata attitude because we can't, you know, there's no clear rules like chess. I mean, it's life. No, Annie Duke says that what we do is we master a few foundational principles that guide our decision-making in poker as well as life. Because what makes a decision great is not that it has a great outcome. I mean, that's what we want on the average over time. But a great decision is the result of a good process, and that process must include an attempt to accurately represent our own state of knowledge. And that state of knowledge, a lot of times, is some variation of, I'm not sure. So principle one of thinking in bets and making good decisions, getting whatever you want, getting so rich, getting so jacked, is that good decision makers embrace uncertainty. 
And instead of focusing on being sure, they try to figure out how unsure they are. So they make their best guess with all the different outcomes out there. Because a, a lot of times in life, I mean, we're, we're tasked with multiple options and all of them are, I mean, either bad or you know, nothing is clearly the best. And we need to be able to pick the least awful option. And there are there's so many reasons why wrapping our arms around uncertainty and giving it a big hug will help us become better decision makers. Uh, here's two of them. First, I'm not sure is simply just a more accurate representation of the world. Second, and related, when we accept that we can't be sure, we are less likely to fall into the trap of black and white thinking. So she, she brings up a, a great example to illustrate this, where she's the dealer at a charity poker tournament, and she's doing the odds, and she's announcing the odds. And so it was an all-in situation, and hey, she, she flipped uh, both people's cards because it's all-in, and that's, that's what she fucking do. And um, she said, hey, this player has 76% odds. And they lost. And so some drunk idiot in the crowd heckled her. And was like, huh, huh, you're wrong. And she explained, dude, first of all, you're stupid. And no, I'm not wrong. We just got to witness the 24%. And, and later on, there was an 82% chance that one player was going to win the hand. And then 18% that the other guy was going to win. And, that's, and then the 18% guy won. And that same drunk idiot yelled, looks like this was the 18%. And that is exactly it. But it's, it's, it's easier in poker because you, we, we can calculate the odds like that. But it's a little bit harder in life. You know, so say you're moving cross country for a job or you lose your job or you buy a stock and two weeks later, you find out the CFO's cooking the books. Or predicting Brexit, or Trump being elected, or all these different things. You know, everybody loves to say, haha, you're wrong. But more likely, it wasn't a definitive prediction anyways. And we are just getting to see the 18%. So first principle, you gotta realize that it's not chess. Embrace the uncertainty, live in the uncertainty. The second principle here is that decisions are bets on the future and they aren't right or wrong based on whether they turn out well on any particular iteration. It just isn't black and white. You know, maybe we had a bunch of options that sucked. Um, maybe we took a long shot that, be that because the payoff was worth it and it didn't work out, we still agree with that decision. You know, maybe we made the best decision using the information at hand, but we didn't have all the information. We, maybe we just picked the best option and got unlucky. You know, crazier one, you know, maybe there were five options and we picked the second best. Not wrong, but not really right either. Um, 
I think a little bit of an investment side story here. Interestingly, that that is actually how we would think about investing. Uh, like that's how we think about risk in the investment world. So I remember in 2015, maybe some something like that. Um, there was some sort of fuckery that was causing oil prices to be ridiculously low. So it was like an oversupply of oil. And really there's nothing structurally wrong with the markets. I mean, everything else was blowing up. Just oil was getting hammered. And I remember telling my wife, hey, there is there is a 90%, because because oil had gone down from like, just pick a random stock, Marathon oil from like $30 a share to like $4 a share. And I told my wife, I was like, hey, I am 90% sure if we take all our money and we put it on this one stock that we'll like quadruple our money. But I did not do that because that would have been crazy risky. And, you know, it, it turned out that it actually did go up a bunch and I, you know, I put a couple thousand dollars or something into it, but um, you know, decisions are bets on the future. And so we've got to weigh all the outcomes and I would put forth if I did that and I put all my money on that and it did turn into, you know, quadruple my money, that would actually still be a bad decision that just happened to have a good outcome. Because if you do enough of those 90% decisions, you're going to lose all your shit eventually. Because the world's just a, a random place. And, and the influence of luck, I mean, really makes it impossible to predict exactly how things will turn out. And all that hidden information makes it worse. I mean, you know, all it takes is one scandal between the Saudi Arabian prince and Angela Merkel. And my great plan uh, turns into years of not wanting to sell at a huge loss and ruining myself financially. So keeping with decisions are bets on the future. We got this professional poker player, John Hennigan. You know, he's a, he's a vampire, so he sleeps during the day. He plays poker at night. Uh, a notorious extroverted, wheeling and dealing, crazy gambler guy. And he lives in Las Vegas. And so he's just, just constantly stimulated, um, you know, sucking blood and stuff. And around the poker table, they're having a conversation. Somebody mentions that they live in Des Moines, Iowa, or they lived or grew up or something in Des Moines, Iowa. And, you know, as it sounds like is common on the poker table, the concept turns to, hey, John, I bet you would not go drop everything and move to Des Moines. And he's like, well, what's this bet? And after going back and forth and back and forth, they figure out that for $30,000, I will, you know, the group bet him to move to Des Moines. So the next day, packs up all his stuff, moves to Des Moines, Iowa for 30 days. After two days, he calls and says, hey, I mean, because this dude's a, a wheeler and dealer. After two days, he calls and says, hey, I'll let you out of the bet. Just pay me 15000 But all of his friends are like, bitch, this is the biggest buying signal that you are screwed. Negative. And so after a week, he comes back, he pays his way out of this bet, and he goes back to his vampiric life 
in Las Vegas. And this sounds like a crazy story, but if we think about it, how different is this from just moving across the country for a job? Because if you think about it, all decisions are actually bets. I mean, we routinely decide among alternatives. Uh, we put resources at risk, we assess the likelihood of different outcomes, you know, we consider what we value, we take opportunity costs into account because, you know, he could, so he gets a guaranteed 30K, but there's an opportunity cost there where, well, he could lose more than 30K, you know, in poker for a month if he just stayed in Las Vegas, but he could earn 200K in a month. And so there's an opportunity cost and we have that as well. And I think a lot of times, one of the reasons, and, and it's not me thinking this, this is goddamn Annie Duke, but one of the reasons we don't naturally think of decisions as bets is because we get hung up on the zero-sum nature of the betting that occurs in gambling. You know, betting against somebody else. But Annie Duke just loves to just take the mic up to the top of a fucking mountain and drop it. So get ready for this fucking concept. In most of our decisions, we are not betting against another person. Rather, we are betting against all the future versions of ourselves that we are not choosing. Fucking think about that. God damn it, Annie Duke. I'm, I'm throwing up over here. This is too crazy. This podcast is sponsored by Bullet Bourbon. I'm going to take a drink. Okay, I'm just drinking it for free. Clearly not sponsored by Bullet Bourbon, but I am a fan. Okay, so decisions are bets on the future. Okay, they're not right, they're not wrong. There's 10,000 shades of gray. Principle three, the more accurate your beliefs, the better. Now, this is ultimately very good news. Because part of the skill in life comes from learning to be a better belief calibrator. You know, using experience and information uh, to more objectively update our beliefs, to more accurately represent the world. And the more accurate our beliefs, the better the foundation of the bets we make. So think about that. If we can if we can have, if we can at least stack the odds in our favor by, by having our beliefs be mostly correct, that goes a long way. Because humans, well, we're kind of, uh, kind of irrational many times. And if, and if your beliefs suck, your bets suck. She, she tells a funny skit. I don't, I don't under, I don't remember where this was, but maybe it's a, a radio station or something, but. Um, I think it is. So this radio station's having a promotion for Thanksgiving where uh, they're taking a, a helicopter up over the city and they're releasing a bunch of turkeys out, out, the, out the back of the helicopter. And you know they go up there, oh, it's going to be this cool stunt, oh, it's going to be great. And they, they throw the first turkey off, they throw the second turkey, they throw 20 turkeys off. And all of a sudden, the the camera pans over and just a fucking turkey just smashes into a window of a car and explodes blood 
guts everywhere screaming, oh the humanity, oh my god, it's like the fucking Hindenburg blimp exploding and everybody's dying. And the project manager for this this turkey contest, he, he runs into his boss's office and is like, oh, dude, dude, I, I swear, I thought turkeys could fly. And that's a kind of stupid, silly example. But, you know, if you start your bet with the belief that turkeys can fly and you've done wrong, well, you're going to cause Turkey Hindenburg. Now, I've got a personal story about this. Back in the day in college, I was in a fraternity and we were trying to attract young men, freshmen, to join our fraternity. I was maybe a junior or a sophomore. And it's always this interesting dynamic, almost like dating men, but you're straight and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. And so you, know, you, wanna, you don't wanna be too interested, but you wanna be cool. You wanna, you wanna show them like, look, we all come together, we're all friends, we're cool, the girls like us, and if you hang out with us, you'll have all that stuff too. So, we planned a slip and slide. Now, back then we weren't very good planners, and I wasn't, I wasn't part of this, I was just a victim. And so we enlisted the smelly kid and and the smelly kid you know, we, we all kind of just like waved our hands and just like get out of here smelly kid but so we gave him the simplest the simplest fucking task for the slip and slide and it was hey smelly kid get some soap for the slip and slide and that was our first error because uh of course smelly kid doesn't know about fucking soap but we didn't think anything of it so slip and slide day happens and it's morning and you know we're, we're drinking some morning beers because dude the social contract in college is clearly chess just uh if you get good grades you can be drunk the rest of the time and so morning beers were going down tasting good man natural light in a solo cup nothing like that for breakfast Ugh, disgusting and it's great it's 10 a.m you know we got the we've got the the slip and slide starting up we're putting some water down and then you know we see the smelly kid and he he's he's putting what looks like tide you know maybe detergent but we're like eh, I'm, I'm sure that he thought this thing through and and there's a lot of hot girls here too so like totally going to attract freshman guys this is gonna be great well i go down and you know, I'm very agile, and, and so I, I, I go down, I go down again, I'm doing, doing cool slides, and um, it's great. There's girls, they're loving it, there's freshman guys, everything is great. And 30 minutes in, I'm, I'm walking, and I, I feel a little, I feel a little sting on my peeper, as they say. And I'm like, well, what, what the, what the heck is that? That's uh, that's that's unusual, but I don't I don't really think anything of it, and you know I'm 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 just like having fun and drinking morning beers, and then and then I'm I'm walking and and I'm sorry, internet, it, I, I've been coached not to not to be too offensive, but I, I got to tell the truth, man, and I have, I have a friend who says the truth is never mean, so I'm walking along and I and I feel I feel another sting on, um, I think the technical term is my taint. And I'm like, oh, oh, 
well, what is this? And then it gets worse. And then I am, I am wearing a diaper of bees. Yeah, what the hell is happening? And I walk up to my other friend, you know, still trying to play it cool, because I'm trying to determine uh, kind of deductively, like, is it is it just my nether region that is has descended into hell, or is it everybody's? And I go up to him, I'm like, hey man, um, so anything feeling weird for you? Just kind of leaving it open-ended, you know, I can always back out and and not admit that I've got chemical burns on my genitals, but um, he's like, well, actually, yeah. And then it's like that, just that stomach dropping feeling. We look around and, you know, everybody is, is touching their crotch. They're doing the potty dance. And I go up to the smelly kid and I'm like, bro, what the fuck did you use to lubricate the slip inside? And he's like, well, I don't know, man. I, I think I got tied. And we're like, tied? Are you fucking serious? Dude, you have burned my actual dick. And and, I, and I'm not gonna lie, dude. I got I got a I got a scab. I got chemical burns on my dick. And I, and I wouldn't tell the story if it wasn't true. But that illustrates, man, how if your beliefs, you know, no matter how crazy they sound. If you actually believe that Tide is a good lubricant for a slip inside, you know, the outcome of your bet is going to be 20 people in your fraternity all getting chemical burns on their genitals. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that shit. Fuck you, smelly kid. I'm not going to say your name. But, you know, it's really, it's really attractive uh, to to kind of fall into some of these logical traps because you know we're not the most rational just by being people so you know I, I found a few interesting examples of widely held beliefs that are false so um dog years how many years in dog years duh everyone knows seven incorrect we only use 10 percent of our brain yeah that's wrong uh there's no evidence of msg triggering migraines you know, uh, Chinese restaurant syndrome is what it's called. But I would put forth that, you know, if you eat seven pounds of anything, you might get a headache. Um, for all you true crime fans, shout out True Crime Garage. It is rarely necessary to wait 24 hours to file a missing persons report. That is a myth. And uh, last but not least, Buddha, you know, fat kind of happy guy. Yeah, he's not fat. He... He fucking fasted for, for weeks, dude. He's not fat. Uh, if, if you want to dig in deeper into this, um, there's two really good books, Predictably Irrational and Thinking Fast and Slow. And both of them circle around this concept that we humans in our natural state have this reptilian lizard brain that mostly takes over. You know, we are really good at hearing a rustling in the grass and getting the fuck out of there. We are really good at that. We are not very good at incorporating a complex, subtle stimuli into our existing worldview and, and chunking it up into a pattern that then we make a rational decision. And we're more likely to just 
ah, fuck it, and we just just run. So good books. I, I mean, thinking fast and slow is like a fucking tome. Okay, um, but all of this is is hard because, like I was alluding to, you know, our, our baseline is we as humans are kind of idiots when it comes to complex decision making, and so uh, this this section goes into a lot deeper errors of cognition that people make, but I'm going to just touch on a few. Um, uh, the first is she calls it the fielding error. And so she says this is the most significant problem for poker players. And so it's, it's the way that we field outcomes. So we take credit for the good stuff and we blame the bad stuff on luck. So it won't be our fault. And the result is that we don't learn from experience very well. And the second bias, and she's kind of circled around this as well, is this all or none thinking. Uh, it goes back to that 18% example. You know, you're not, most decisions are not right or wrong. I mean, you can probably be more right here and uh, maybe, maybe more wrong there, but um, this all or none bias, she says that those are the two biggest problem she sees with people in poker. You know, she, she brought the example of you know her little her little napkin covered in crayon. Uh, there were like 10 hands that she was allowed to play. And so she had this all or none thought that you know, anybody playing a hand that's not those hands, idiot. But that's just wrong. That was a good heuristic that she had, a rule of thumb, but it's wrong. Uh, a few other interesting things, again, dive into those other books if you want to get a, a more deep example of all the ways that humans done fuck up decision making, but uh, a couple interesting ones. Anchoring. So um, anchoring means if you're exposed to something, then something looks like something else. So like, let me give you an example. Um, you know, uh, the wife and I bought this uh, Warren Buffett would call it a value investment. We bought this this shitty ass foreclosure, but we're fixing it up and 30 acres and I could deer hunt in my backyard and, and all is well. However, it did not say this in the seller disclosure, but there were snakes in the basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to check it out, uh, my wife has a YouTube channel called That Farm Lady and um, there's a video of her ripping a snake out of the ceiling. And I'll, I'll let you watch that video, but suffice to say, I am not as tough as I could be when it comes to snakes. And so, you know, she would like go grab the snake with her fucking hands because like all creatures are beautiful. And, you know, dude, I almost burned the house down. And then, you know, my second thought was just take the AR-15, just pop, 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 pop. And, but I did neither of those. And I just texted her like, come home, come home. And uh, then she just, she just ripped it out. But weeks later, she got a toy snake. Luckily I saw it. So uh, I was kind of aware that I might be pranked. But so she comes in with the toy snake and I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm about to jump out the window. Um, but she's left the toy snake out on the table. And I'm telling you, I look at the toy snake and then I'll anchor on it. And then like I, I looked in my garage and there was a chainsaw chain on the ground. And I'm, I was 75% more likely 
my brain just went, snake, snake. Turns out chainsaw chain. So that's anchoring. And there's all types, like there's studies with sales where you know people anchor on the first price you give. So you know if you give a super duper high price, uh, you know it's good for negotiation. There's a lot deeper that you can dive into that. Um, another bias is primacy and recency. And that means that when you're giving a presentation, the first thing you present and the last thing you present, people tend to remember it better. And so, you know, it would make sense if you are in a debate with somebody to try to go last or go first. Because if you just get lost in the middle, you're going to have to do something to break that up. Uh, the next is social proof. I think of a think of a standing ovation. So, you know, uh, you guys have all probably been in this situation. Now that I know about social proof, it's a it's a very weird situation for me where I'm sitting there at a dinner or at something where I don't even fucking know who the speaker is. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts clapping. And then those those few glory seekers, they stand up and they, they, they take the risk of starting the standing ovation. They're clapping, they're clapping. And then, then that that old rich grandma with no purpose, she, she, she steps up too. And then another, and then another, and then another. And then everybody at your table stands up. Now, there's no rule that you have to stand up, but try not to fucking stand up. Try. Yeah, that compulsion, that's called social proof. And that applies in everywhere. We'll, we'll cover a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. And dude, it, my wife saved the guy's life because of social proof, because everybody was just driving by him and he was, was collapsed on the sidewalk. And the way that social proof works is, you know, if, if one person sees that dude collapse on the sidewalk and they're like, oh, that's weird, and they just walk by, then another person, they see that dude, but they also see the guy who just walked by. And they're like, well, you know, maybe they know something I don't know. And then by the time 20 people walk by, the stimuli of that next person, they see a guy laying on the sidewalk, but they see people walking by. And they're like, well, they must know something that I don't, because social proof would kick in, because we are just, just animals. Uh, motivated reasoning. That means like, um, think about, let's say you hate Trump, okay? You're a lot more likely to find facts against Trump and you know start with the position, Trump's horrible, and then find things to support that, than starting with the position, let me figure out the facts. And then, you know, the facts probably say Trump's horrible, but it's a little bit of a, a nuance there. And then we've already talked about this, but resulting. And so I, she gives a, she gives a great example and I'm going to share it. Uh, and again, I, I'm not a baseball fan. I mean, if it's, if it's not fighting, like I don't really care. Like baseball, like hit the ball with the stick, hit the ball with the stick. Yeah. The stick, the ball. It's kind of how I feel about baseball, but I'm going to suspend my disbelief because there's the way is inside of this example. And so it's the, the Cubs, the Chicago Cubs, World Series. Um, uh, apparently, or maybe the fucking championship, I don't know, whatever. They, they suck so much that the only explanation about why they suck so much, why they've not won a World Series, and I think they did win, so this doesn't apply as much, but is a curse. Okay, but so the, the incident in question occurred in the eighth inning of game six of the National League Championship Series. I don't know, maybe that's the one to go before the World Series, whatever. They are up three to zero. They are ahead three games to two in a best of seven series. 
Marlins batter Luis Castillo hits a fly ball into foul territory in the left field. Cubs outfielder Jose Salou pursued the ball and leapt near the fence in an attempt to make the catch. Along with other spectators seated against the wall, Cubs fan Steve Bartman reached for the ball. But then he fucked up. He deflected it, disrupting Alou's potential catch. If Alou had caught the ball, it would have been the second out of the inning, and the Cubs would have just been four outs away from winning their first National League pennant since 1945. Well, the Cubs ultimately allowed eight runs in the inning, lost the game eight to three, and then they were eliminated in game seven. And you know, you'd think that everybody would be rational and say, God damn it, Cubs, Jesus Christ, you guys choked. Incorrect. Everybody just hated the shit out of Steve Bartman. There were death threats. I mean, just picture, uh, I don't know if you guys have watched Planet Earth, but there's a, there's a pretty cool one where the chimpanzees, they, they rip a little monkey apart, and it's but it's like shot cinematographically, whatever that word is. And so it's very, very uh, powerful, like a movie trailer, but it, it's kind of weird because it's like a monkey being ripped apart. Uh, that is how people felt about Bartman. But no one brings up the fact that, hey guys, uh, this dude is a spectator, okay? He's not a professional baseball player. And, and by the way, um, the Marlins went on to score eight runs in the inning. Seven, the, seven of them, after two batters later, the Cubs shortstop, Alex Gonzalez, he bobbled an inning-ending double play ball for an error. So, you know, no, let's not blame Alex who's fucking up. Let's not blame the fact that you let you let them score eight runs on you. Let's blame the fan. Nope. But unanimously, everybody blamed the fan. And that's because you've got to know yourself to improve the accuracy of your beliefs. Third, so that's the third principle which is the more accurate your beliefs, the better. And there's a lot of reasons why your beliefs could not be accurate. Dig in, but get them bitches accurate. Number four, principle four. It helps to formalize any decision you make as a bet. Because if not, what the fuck are we, what are we supposed to do? Are we doomed to a life of closed-minded fate, bouncing around from one idea to the next until we die or go to prison for public nudity? No. Annie Duke, her contribution to the fucking world is about to happen. If you ask yourself, do you want to bet? All these great benefits happen. Because... When we don't ask that, when we don't critically evaluate our beliefs, we can get away with a lot of fuckery. But if you ask yourself, do you want to bet? We start behaving more rationally. We get less tied to your idea and more tied to the best idea. The resulting, so marking the quality of decision by the outcome goes away. You know, think of if you got into a car accident and you were sure it wasn't your fault. But then somebody comes up and is like, hey, you want to bet on that? 
I'll bet you 500 bucks it was your fault. Well, a little bit of doubt creeps in. There's even been studies that betting markets drastically enhance decision quality. And Annie puts forth that you know, what she learned on the poker table and she saw this, you know, this behavior in the poker game, but also just the fact that everybody's betting, there's this social norm that if anybody says anything fucking stupid, everybody like fucking sharks just says, wanna bet, wanna bet? And it, it's a forcing function for all around better decision making. And she says, we can train ourselves to view the world through the lens of wanna bet. Because we would be better served as communicators and decision makers if we thought less about whether we are confident in our beliefs and more about how confident we are. So instead of thinking of confidence as all or nothing, you know, I'm confident or I'm not confident, our expression of our confidence would then be like, I'm pretty sure about this, but I could be wrong. And that's because a lot of times, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump back into the into the recesses of my mind here and explain some formal logic to you guys. Uh, two types of logic: deductive and inductive. Deductive, by definition, has to be true. If A is bigger than B, and B is bigger than C, A must be bigger than C. So if I am bigger than a cat, and a cat is bigger than a mouse, I have to. I am deductively bound. I must be bigger than a mouse. That is what people think when they think of logic. But people don't understand that there's a whole other side of logic, which is actually what we mostly use. And that is inductive logic. And that is we look around, we gather all the facts, and we make a bet. So we look at the light switch, we turn it on, and the light turns on. Now we have a bunch of history of doing that. We know of the concept of electricity, but like maybe it's some giant fucking lie. Maybe it's magic. Uh, but you know, if we had to bet, uh, there's a lot of scientists with, with really no vested interest that have, you know, no one's come out and debunked this, this, this light up magic thing. And so we inductively make the bet that it's probably electricity, but it could be God. We don't know. But I would say that the inductive argument of electricity is just is much stronger than the inductive argument of magic. And so when we realize that, it's when we make a bet, we're not trying to be deductively right. You know, it's not I am bigger than a mouse. It's a lot more like, hey, this shit's crazy. Um but I've heard about this electricity stuff and you know, I'm pretty sure that it's not some giant scam, but I don't know. So if I had to guess, I would say like, I am 99% sure. But now think about, think about your car. You know, now we're getting a lot more gray for me. You know, I basically go to the mechanic and I cover my eyes and I'm just like, just, just don't make it too much. And, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things where the mechanic could come back and be like, oh yeah, it's this. Yep, 700 bucks. And I'm like, ah, damn it. And I pay 700 bucks, because I was wrong. You know, and even scientific studies do this. I mean, you have a scientific study, they evaluate some data, 
but they have a p-value, which is an expression of confidence. So the more we can get to thinking about our decisions as bets, the better. Because once you retrain yourself to think about all decisions as bets, you can then rewire your brain. Instead of getting the reward, that good feeling about uh, you know, only like a good outcome, you can now get that reward from being a good credit giver, a good mistake admitter, a good finder of mistakes in good outcomes, a good learner, and as a result, a good decision maker. But it's not that you closed your eyes, you went all in, and hey, you won. No, it's because you, you can retrain yourself and you can take pride in the fact that you make smart bets. Now, if we put this into practice, you know, we can just build a lot more outcomes, being open-minded, um, and, and we become motivated by accuracy and truth-seeking. And, and she gives a great example of Phil Ivey, who's some really, really good poker player. And he won this tournament, and all he could talk about was like, hey, I got a question here. You know, I made this decision. Do you think that that's a good decision? And so he's debriefing with another poker player, and the dude's like, bro, you just won like $10 million. He's like, yeah, whatever. I don't care about the result. I just want to really understand if my decision, if my bets were good. And, you know, if, imagine if you had to bet on something and someone brings up contradictory evidence. I mean, that's it's no longer like someone's disagreeing with your baby. It's like they're keeping you from having to pay $500. So it's it's helpful. Um, there's a rule in sales, which is uh, when do you want to be told no? And, and the answer is as early as possible. And it's the exact same thing in making decisions. When do I want to know if I'm about to embark on a dumb fucking plan. Uh, like, any day now, any time, feel free to fucking tell me. And if you if you look at the world as, as thinking in bets, somebody giving you feedback, they're just helping calibrate your bets to be better. But if you look at the world as this all or nothing, black or white, right or wrong, you know, my plan is right, then they're being dicks. They're being mean to you as a human being. And again, I'm, I'm going to keep hammering this home, but the benefits of recognizing legitimately just, just a few extra learning opportunities compound over time. And the cumulative effect of being just a little bit better at decision making, it, you know, it's a billion grains of rice, bitch. Now, the next section that she brings up is useful and helpful if you are in a group. But I also want to remember that there's no excuse. If you do not have a group, you can still shut the fuck up, force your corpse, and do a good job and make rational decisions. But the great Annie Duke, when she wasn't not having babies on national television, was involved in what she calls a decision group. And in her case, it was a lot of professional poker players. They would all get together. They would all kind of commiserate, but mostly uh, lead into discussions about how to rationally and objectively get better at poker. And she brought up the example of when she first started, she would, you know, when she first started discussing hands, quote unquote, with her brother, 
she really started just like complaining about bad luck. But her brother, in good brotherly fashion, was basically like, yo, hey, I don't give a fuck about your bad luck. I will only discuss hands with you that you won. And she's like, what? No, but, but like I lost. He's like, yes, you are stupid. You do not understand. Okay. Divorce yourself from the outcome. I want to look at your decisions regardless of your outcome. And if she wanted him to engage with her, she had to identify some point in those winning hands where she might have made a mistake. And that one simple thing, she says, was transformational. And eventually he stopped being such a dick and she was allowed to talk to him about hands she lost. But um, this is the root of a decision group. But even more, so it's, it's this commitment to, this is commitment to truth and justice, but it also, uh, diversity in opinion is very important. Uh, there's a book where we will clearly cover the wisdom of crowds, but it talks about how if there's like, I'm just making this up, don't let the facts get in the way of the principle here. Um, there's a hundred Harvard MBAs and they all have to kind of group make a decision they will actually statistically make a less good decision than if there's 80 harvard mbas and 20 random people picked from the united states and that is because that uh, well-deployed diversity of viewpoints can reduce uncertainty due to incomplete information by filling in the gaps in what we know you know making life start to be a little bit more neatly like a chessboard. And we see this all the time in the business world. You know, if there's if there's five strong leaders that all have the same point of view, there's certain things that can't even be discussed. It's fucking heresy if you bring up, what about a commission plan? Or what about this? What about that? Shut up, witch! You you be glad we don't burn you in front of the whole company. But now let's say that instead of those five leaders that all believe the same thing, you had some diversity of opinion in there and some open-mindedness, bitch shit be changing. Uh, interesting example of, maybe not even a good example, but back in the day, the Supreme Court would have all these clerks and they would hire people with different viewpoints. Starting in 2010 though, uh, everybody sucks and they just hire Republican justices, hire Republican clerks. And uh, the decisions have gone even more just down party lines and um, just one step to Hitler. I mean, think of Hitler. Like, you, zero diversity in opinion because if you disagreed with him, he'd kill you. So we don't want to be like that. We want to have a fully diverse ability to discuss nothing's taboo that's the decision group and you know i think that applies to a lot of people at work it doesn't apply as much if you're just this individual person out there but you know you got to interact with people and the great annie duke went even deeper because she was a master student in psychology so of course let's cite some some smart folks but um, I'm, I'm gonna breeze through this here but she cites 
the rules that Robert Merton, a sociologist, developed for groups of people to interact and ultimately search for truth. She called him, well, he calls it the kudos method. And that's an acronym, of course. It's how truth-seeking groups should react. And Annie says, not surprisingly, Merton's paper would make an excellent career guide for anyone seeking to be a profitable better or a profitable decision maker, period. Okay, so there's some ground rules for this group. And don't turn off the podcast. I'm really sorry. I want to spit on the ground too. But the first letter, C, stands for communism. Oh my God. The second, universalism. The third, disinterestedness. And the fourth is one of those silly acronyms, organized skepticism. Organized skepticism. That's what the O and S stands for. So before you go turning off the podcast, in this example, and we're renaming this shit right now. Sorry, Robert Merton. It's no longer okay to call it communism. It's called open source data. That's what that's what I just renamed this shit. But what it what it really means is that the data belongs to the group. Think of a scientist who's, who's run an experiment and they they release their data. So they say, hey, this is my results, but but guys. Here is my data. If you find I'm wrong, I, I really hope I'm not, but if you find out that I'm wrong, let me know. And again, this is obviously not the political system I spit on the ground, but this is communal ownership of data within groups. And it's really interesting actually, but what this came to my mind is that is kind of the, the democratization of martial arts that we've seen with MMA. So back in the day, and you know, I came up not that I came up like I was so good or anything, but I was doing martial arts right at the tail end when the vestiges of this fuckery had, had mostly fizzled out. But in the 70s, dude, you could set up a martial arts school and you could teach the death touch. And you could get paying students to, to, to come to your school and waste years of their lives learning out how to knock people out with their mind. But it's all bullshit. There's some kind of shocking, real fucked up videos on, on the internet where a a master of this death touch of his chi, his chi is, is godly. He challenges anybody out there who can kick his ass. I'll pay you $5,000. One of the worst ones was this, this amateur MMA fighter came and was like, Okay, bro, I fight all the time. Yeah, dude, I'll, I'll fight you. Hey, you might win. And if you do, like, teach me your death touch because I want to use it in competition. But they start out, she master doesn't even have his hands up. And predictably, oh, and she master's like 65. So, like, he's been living this lie just put forth by yes men for years. She master, uh, yeah, he takes, he takes a jab, cross, jab, cross. And Chi Master, yeah, his world is imploding. The story that he told himself for 25 years and built his entire life, self-identity, and business on was a lie. And he quickly learned that it was a lie when the data was released to the world by coming into contact with an MMA fighter who beat the shit out of him and then he had to pay $5,000 to that guy. 
Yeah. So communism, again, changing the name to, to open source data. But in a, in a group, everybody has to have access to all the facts so that everybody can think and everybody can poke holes. She says, as, as a rule of thumb, if we have an urge to leave out a detail because it makes us uncomfortable or requires more clarification, yeah, those are exactly the details you should share. Okay, so when you're presenting something, you know, don't try to hide something to prove yourself right. Try to say, hey guys, this is what I think, but there's this like kind of stuff that I can't explain over here that I'm kind of confused and I'm really hoping that one of you can give me some feedback because um, I might be totally going down the wrong path. And when you give people permission to do that, life-changing. The second norm, the second Mertonian norm is universalism. And now that's the opposite. And what that means is that truth claims whatever their source are to be subjected to pre-established impersonal criteria, meaning don't shoot the messenger. It means an acceptance or rejection of an idea must not depend on the social attributes, excuse <clears throat> the social attributes of their protagonist. You know, when, when we have a negative opinion about the person delivering the message, I mean, we close our minds to what they're saying and miss a lot of learning opportunities. And dude, I see this stuff at work all the time. I mean, there's some people who, you know, do not always interact in the best way and are not always the most respected. And I try really hard to just be, you know, super open-minded because you know, I don't need to fucking come up with the idea. If the janitor tells me how to make a million dollars, I'll steal that shit and make a million dollars. I'm totally fine. So I'm open, but it's it's very interesting how um, people, they attach a weighting to facts based on who's presenting them. And that's probably somewhat reasonable because you know, if you've got some guy who lies all the time, you probably shouldn't pay attention to his lie. But if that same guy who lies all the time says, hey man, my tire is flat, and you go out there and look at his tire is flat, you just have to believe his tire is flat, even if he lies all the time. Disinterestedness is the next one. And that is an interesting concept that I'm actually learning because I've never really managed people before, and I am now have the great privilege of managing someone. And um, it is... It is not being swayed prior to having all the facts. So like a great example is, um, you know, in any business situation, if there's a superior and a subordinate, uh, one thing that I've found I've tried to do is ask the subordinate for their opinion first. Because if the superior gives their opinion, there's a 98% chance that's a subordinate, unless the subordinate's either disagreeable or there's some strong social norms put down by that group. There's a 98% chance that that subordinate is just gonna give the opinion that they think that the superior wants, which turns you, you do that once, okay. You do that 50 times, you're that Tai Chi master getting his ass kicked by the MMA fighter. So be a seeker of truth. The group's reinforcement 
ought to discourage us from creating a straw man argument. Um, ba basically, you know, we should all just try to operate by the rules of debate and rhetoric and reason, which, you know, it, it's not it's not trying to prove the other person wrong and, and win an argument like in a like in a high school cafeteria competition. It's like trying to truly examine your ideas and confirm if they're right, if they're kind of right, if they're super shitty or somewhere in between and crowdsourcing feedback from everybody. And the last double duty bullet is organized skepticism. And uh, skepticism is about approaching the world by asking why things might not be true. So uh, thinking in bets just embodies that because, you know, hey, I'll bet you money your shit's not true. Well, hold on a second. Let me take a step back and think that through a little bit more. Um, and, and an interesting thing that she just kind of in passing says is that skepticism should be encouraged and where possible operationalized. So uh, think of, I think it was the Catholic Church. They brought up the devil's advocate. And so that is the person arguing for the devil. So arguing against the church to fight groupthink. So, you know, maybe that's the leader because it really, really helps if it comes from the leader. Maybe that's the leader saying, cool, guys, in the last 10 minutes of this meeting, let's try to figure out why this is a dumb idea. And I'll pay somebody five bucks if they can find something structurally wrong with this idea. I'm pretty sure you'd find a lot of, of ways to make your ideas better. The sixth and final principle from the great Annie Duke is to set up structures to trick your stupid human mind into making better decisions. I'm paraphrasing. A few interesting examples of how we just fall into, you know, these aren't, these aren't like anchoring, like kind of buzzfeedy little things. These are big problems in our overall human decision-making. Uh, the first is temporal discounting. So this sounds like some complicated investment vehicle or you know, something you'd get on sale from a sushi restaurant, but neither of those are true. It is when we make in the moment decisions, you know, and don't ponder the past or the future, Basically, we favor our present self at the expense of future self. So, I don't know about you guys, but every now and then I do like to have some adult beverages. And I've come up with a concept called the fun curve. Okay, so when you're drinking, there's a, a strong increase in fun the more alcohol you have. And it goes up pretty linearly. You know, the second beer is better than the third beer. And I like whiskey, so we'll say the third drink is is better than the second. The fourth drink is way better than the third. By the fifth drink, you're ready to buy stuff online. But then the fun curve quickly slopes down. And if you go too far, if you go to the eighth drink, yeah, you descend into hell. And the goal of drinking should be to maximize, to ride the fun curve. 
to, to drink just enough that for as long as possible in a 24-hour period, you can be as drunk as possible without ever dipping down the fun curve. You drink a gallon of baby water. It's water that has a baby's face on it. Don't, don't worry about it. You drink a gallon of liquid. You eat enough food. You wake up the next day. Great. That's because if you don't do that, if you temporally discount, if you say, you know what, short-term Troy wants to have the eighth drink. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a little clue. You will still be alive the next day, but morning Troy gonna be real mad at nighttime Troy. So uh, how do we not temporally discount? And this is where the, um, the setting up some structures or, or at least understanding some structures is really helpful. Um, so a great example is retirement. You know, there's some shocking statistics of how many people have retirement savings. It's not very many. Um, and so Annie Duke brings up an example of it would be great if there was a way to meet your future self. Well, the closest we can get is with some of this retiring retirement modeling. And that's basically you run the next 30 years. And you forecast if you invested this way, how much money you have. If you invested this way, how much money would you have? If you save, how much money would you have? And you can you can you can make it a lot more concrete than just the the stupid Benjamin Franklin saying of a penny saved is a penny earned. Because a lot of because it's like, shut up, Benjamin. You know, I don't give a shit about that. I want to get wasted. But if you realize that Actually, if you don't save this much money this month, then you'll have to work until you're 70. And just like morning and night, Troy, pretty sure you're still going to be yourself when you're 70 and you're going to be pretty pissed at your 30-year-old self. Uh, another kind of personal example, I don't, I don't know why this stuck with me, but there's a Reddit comment and it made the comment, you know, because the prompt was something like, you know, how do I, you know, I'm older, I'm, I'm 35 and I'm wanting to start to play guitar, but you know, I mean, it takes five years before I'm gonna be good at it. What do I do? And, and some wise internet philosopher just, just said, you're going to be 40 anyways. And I don't know why that stuck with me so much, but it's like, yeah, fuck, you know? What? What do I want? Do I want to be 40 and not know how to play the guitar? Or do I want to be 40 and know how to play the guitar? Um, another tactic to stop temporal discounting is, she says, to move regret in front of our decisions. And so basically the way that I'm understanding that is think about how horrible losing is. So I'll give you an example. I was uh, very good at Taekwondo, okay? I was I was actually objectively super good. Like national champion by the time I was 15, very good. I never failed a testing. I never even got uh, a less than A. We had a, a, a rating system, it wasn't an A, but for all intents and purposes, I never got, I got A's in every single thing. I won everything and I was the best. And my ego got out of control. I thought, 
I am the fucking best. And so, you know, that for, a, for a Taekwondo testing, when you get to a certain level, you have to test at a national testing. So you have to fly to, in this case, it was, I remember it was Florida. You fly to Florida to test. And there's three components of testing. There was forms, which is like memorized movements. I always kind of didn't like it, but now I, I understand the importance. There was sparring, which was basically just like fighting. And that was, if I could, honestly, if I could spar eight hours a day, I mean, it was the most fun thing in the entire world. And then there was board breaking. And board breaking, uh, just something that just felt morally right. There's a, you gotta do certain board breaks, so maybe you gotta do a, an elbow strike, you gotta break two boards. Uh, you gotta do a side kick, you gotta break three boards. And I had never had any problems with board breaking. So, you know, I was the best at sparring. I practiced my form a lot because I didn't like it that much and I wasn't that good at it. And I never practiced board breaking because, you know, I'm the best, man, I'm the best. I was, I was insufferable. And so I get to testing in Florida and I pass my form. I crushed it with sparring and I get to board breaking and I think I had to do a three board elbow strike, a two board, or a three board spin sidekick, and a two board jump spin sidekick. And so I smash the elbow strike, pop. I do my spin sidekick, three boards, pretty hard, crush it. I get on my jump spin sidekick. I jump, I turn, I spin, I miss. And you only get three tries. And if you fail board breaking, you fail everything. And so I miss, but I was my first try, whatever. And dude, the arrogance that I had at this time, I, I told the people holding my board. I remember they were trying to ha help me along. Like, Hey, good job. Like you got this. And I looked them in the face and I said, don't worry. I don't ever fail testing. I don't ever fail testing. Are you fucking serious? Second kick, I jump, I turn, I over-rotate, I hit with the top of my foot. Fuck! It's okay though. I'm, I'm like not even worried. That's the thing. Like this, this uh, arrogance is just insidious. And so I, I'm not even worried. I get to my third kick. I don't even like fucking try. Cause like, why would I try when I'm the best? I jump, I turn, I spin, I miss. I fucking fail. And, and my entire world like crashes around me. And I know it sounds dramatic because, but dude, all I cared about was Taekwondo. I mean, I got good grades in school because it's a social contract and I like to lift because, you know, being jacked is like a, an end in itself. But martial arts were the best thing in my entire life. And with national testing, you had to wait six months to test for the next belt. And so I fucking failed and I had to wait six more months. And you know, I grovel, I, I, I whine, I complain for like a day. And then I realized, hey, you fucking idiot. How about this lesson be burned into your soul forever, you dumb idiot, you fucking asshole. And so I remember I, I have a kicking bag still in my basement. Um, you can still see the mark on it where my jump spin sidekick, where I practiced that. I went to my instructor and you know, I learned a jump spin sidekick five years ago. I went to him, I said, 
can you teach me a jump spin sidekick again? And I said, and just ruthlessly criticize me. And I jump, I turn, I spin, I jump, I turn, I spin, I jump, I turn, I spin. And I practiced, I don't know, 10,000 times, whatever. And I get to the next testing. I wait six months. It's in Dallas, Texas. And I go there. And dude, I am on the warpath. I am so focused. And they call me out for my form. I crush it. They call me out for sparring. Objectively perfect. And then I go to board breaking. And I am so in the zone. I don't talk to anybody. I set the boards up. I am so fucking focused. I break the elbow strike. I break the spin side kick. I get on the last kick. I practice this thousands of times. I jump, I turn, I spin. Perfect kick, I break it, I pass my testing, I get my third degree black belt, and all is well. But that lesson, that lesson stays with me all the time because you know I remember how horrible it felt to fail. You know, my instructor had already ordered my belt. He was like, man, I I didn't think you'd fail. And I'm like, fuck you! I know! I didn't think I'd fail either. Fuck! And but even at work now. You know, I would rather suffer for weeks than fail. And if you bring that regret, that feeling, think about how bad it would feel if you failed. Bring that to the front. You can help some of that temporal discounting because I'm telling you, man, it's not worth it. Um, she gives one more good example of uh, don't watch the stock ticker of life and you know, in the investment world, this is a, a pretty relevant thing because, you know, if, if you're investing for 20 years from now, the sequence of returns does not matter until you need the money. And what that basically means is that if you don't need the money in 20 years, there is there is negative benefit of you checking your investment portfolio every day. Like maybe you should check it quarterly. You should rebalance if necessary. Um, you know, maybe if you have a, a little pocket of money that you use as your uh, your gambling money, then you know maybe there's that same temptation in life. You know, you zoom in on a rainy, cold day when there's a flat tire and you get sprayed by a puddle, and you think, "I'm a failure. I'm a failure." But you're just checking the stock ticker. So don't get too tied to the day-to-day -day successes and failures. You know, if you're successful, hey, great job. Nobody cares, work harder, as Cameron Haynes would say. If you're a failure, hey, all you can do is your best. So that's a pretty impactful concept of don't temporal, temporally discount. The next structure that you can use, the next thing that you can use to make better decisions is this concept of, and it's so simple, but be aware of your emotions. And she does a, a beautiful lead in where she talks about surfers have 20 names for different types of waves uh, because they're so sophisticated and uh, poker players have found a word for bad outcomes can have an impact on your emotions that compromise decision making going forwards so that you make emotionally charged irrational decisions that are likely to result in more bad outcomes what a fucking mouthful but it's an easy one word, tilt, T-I-L-T, just like an old pinball machine. You are on tilt. And so if a poker player tells you you are on tilt, that means that you are making emotionally charged bad decisions and bitch, you're about to lose your life savings. 
uh, signs of being on tilt could be you saying something like, seriously, again? Or, I should hand over all my money. Or, in case of my good friend, uh, I, I told him, I actually hate you as a person. <laughs> I, I gotta tell the story real quick. Um, I, the one and only time, nah, I'm not one and only, but one of the only times that my fucking good friend from the first podcast got under my skin, because there's some things he beat me on that I just knew, like, hey, he was a, a state-level cross-country runner. No chance I could beat him at, at swimming. So the only time I beat him was when he had damn rabdo. But pool, that was my domain. I fucking taught him pool. When we first started, I would play left-handed, and I would, I would still beat him three times in one game. Like I would beat the eight, I'd take, I'd win, I'd, I'd put the eight ball back out and we would keep playing. But to his credit, this motherfucker just slurped up my knowledge out of my brain and just got massively good in like three months. But I still was always better. Even after like a year, I was always like 10% better. Like on my worst day, on his best day, he, he would, he would beat me. 60% of the time. But on my best day, and his best day, he was still my bitch. But there was one of those days where it was it was my worst day. And I had developed this bad habit where, you know, because there's like a kind of like a fun, like you hit the pool ball and, and you wiggle your hand and it's just like such a powerful, like you take all the dignity of the other person away, just, just pop. But I had that had that had progressed to the point that I was I was moving my hand as I would hit the shot, and I wouldn't I wasn't even able to make simple shots. Like the, the bad habit had progressed so much that what I needed to do was sit by the pool table and just move my cue back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until I just extincted that pattern from my fucking brain. But I I always would try to get my friend to gamble. But he never would, because he was playing the odds. He knew. But then on this day, I was playing so shitty. And he said, hey, I'll bet you five bucks. And I was like, holy shit. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise to the occasion. Of course. Five bucks? Yes. I lost five bucks. No problem. Whatever. I lost five bucks all the time in my life. Double or nothing. I still am playing, not even like, not even competitive. I, it's like I have a tick. I am moving my hand. I am a child against a man. I lose 10 bucks, double or nothing. By this time I'm getting pissed. I lose again. I'm down 20 bucks and I am on tilt. I am, I am just frothing at the mouth. I am like focusing as hard as I can, which makes it much worse. Because now I'm focusing, and now I'm not doing the bad habit, but like I don't even remember how to hit the pool ball. Double or nothing again, because my pride, my pride, I think there's a theme. You know, we got to have humility here, as the great Jocko would say. But, you know, I'm, I'm telling you my weaknesses so you can learn from my lessons. Double or nothing, I'm down 20 bucks. I fucking blow it again. I'm down 40. And this bitch... This bitch says, nope, I don't, I, I'll only bet you $5. So I'm like, fine. And so I, I win a game. Oh, variable reinforcement, dude. I am in. It's like, it's like a dog pressing the lever. 
and, and just boom, I, I am ready. I think I win another game, so I'm down 30. And then finally he comes in with the kill shot and he says, double or nothing, you could make this all go away. And I'm like, bitch, yes! Well, the pressure gets to me. I completely fucking fold. I suck a huge dick. I am down 60 bucks. And I'm like, I am, I am, I tell him, I hate you. I hate you as a person. I was just on till. I was losing my fucking mind. And I said, dude, double or nothing, double or nothing. And he said, no, we're done. And my God, I have never been, I have never been more destroyed by another human being. He just, he just was, he, he was inside of my body making my hands miss pull shots. But maybe if you're on tilt, you'd be aware of your emotions and maybe you have a rule where you say, hey, I know that for me personally, it's gonna be different for everybody, but for me personally, maybe it's if I feel this reckless desire to gamble my life savings to prove my honor, I should just call it. Maybe in poker, uh, if, if you lose a certain amount of money, because Andy Dukes is a very profound thing that says, remember that life is just one long poker game. And we got two more life-changing structures here that you can use to be better at decision-making. Uh, the next I'm a big fan of, she calls them Ulysses contracts. Think of Ulysses, some ship captain from, from lore. And he, there was this legend that if you drive your ship next to this island, the, the goddesses on the island were so hot and they were, they were so just deliciously attractive that you would jump into the sea to try to go have sex with them. Now, um, what this guy did was he, he didn't want to test his willpower. He wanted to set up a system that would control his horny ass. So he tied himself to the mast. He put wax in his ears and he did made all his crew do the same. So when all the the sultry sirens came. They were like, come over here. I will have sex with you. And he's just like, I don't hear you. Okay, I need to go deliver my deliver my cargo so I can make a, make a million dollars. But a Ulysses contract is doing something that forces you to have good behavior. So like, let's say it's past Troy, buying a gallon of water, putting it next to the bed in case very drunk Troy is thirsty. Maybe it's not keeping unhealthy food in your house. Uh, maybe you've got a problem with buying stuff at the mall. So your, your Ulysses contract is, I will not even go to the mall. Um, maybe it's you know that when you are somewhere, you will buy unhealthy food. But if you have some food, you won't. So maybe you carry healthy snacks. And the last, and I would say most impactful thing that you can do to trick your stupid human mind into making a better decision is to understand the great Monte Carlo simulation of life. So everybody seems to understand average return. You know, you pick an investment, it's got a 10% average rate of return. 
on the long run, you'll be good. That's basically a true statement. You know, on the long run, you earn 10%. But what that doesn't fucking tell us at all is on the short run. What about next year? So like, I know over time that'll be true, but it tells me absolutely nothing about what next year will do. And so when I was a financial advisor, we would overlay another tool on top called called Monte Carlo simulation. And basically what it was, was we would take an investment portfolio. You know, it's really easy to calculate the average return. So you just look at the historical rates of return for all of the different assets in this portfolio. You know, computers do that shit, we didn't do it. Um, and let's say the average return on this was, we'll just go with 10%. Okay, well that's cool. But again, that doesn't tell us anything about the short term it doesn't because life doesn't work on the average life picks a probability life does something and so what we would do is we would run a monte carlo simulation which basically maps out if you lived your life a thousand times with this portfolio what would happen so let's say it's it's the best we so we, we would map out the best year in the history of mankind we would map out the worst year in the history of mankind and everything in between. And the concept is you wanted to pick a strategy that overlaid on top of all of those possible futures returned the highest likelihood of success. So like, let's say an example of you put all your money in Google stock. There's an average return of 30%. On the average, that's going to be fucking awesome. And the crazy confusing thing is that even maybe on in this lifetime, you put all your money in Google stock, average return of 30%. You do that for 20 years. You retire with a bunch of money. But I would still argue that a bad decision with a good outcome is still a bad decision. Because let's say an antitrust law happens two years prior to your retirement and you lose everything and you say well you know i couldn't have, i couldn't have predicted that you're right but you could have picked a strategy that didn't open you up to that type of risk now this concept fucking blows my mind okay it's it's almost like a spiritual concept i mean it's it's like bumping up on the philosophical understanding of fate Seriously. So think about this shit. Because any decision you make, any bet you make, resets and starts another Monte Carlo simulation. So another thousand trials. So, you know, you're living your life right now. You make a decision. A thousand trials get populated. So, you know, did that decision you make make the worst outcome of those a thousand trials better or worse? Hmm, interesting. And if you can if you can just steer your dumb, human, irrational ass through these fucking infinite possibilities and you make a decision where when the next thousand trials populate, you know, the worst outcome of those trials is better than the worst outcome before you made that decision. So like two examples. Let's say you get your Six Sigma black belt. So you learn about process. Okay, 
boom, you're done with that. Whoop. And that's my that's my Monte Carlo simulations being populated noise. So whoop, thousand trials populated. You graph that, the worst outcome, still fucking super bad. But it's less fucking super bad than before you had that knowledge. Same thing, maybe you do your MBA, maybe you take a Udemy class, you know. Worst outcome, less bad. So if you can if you can just claw your way up, you know, through through deep practice, through acquiring skills, through luck, through smart bets, through you know being ruthlessly rational, you'll eventually get to the point where think of Warren Buffett's Monte Carlo simulation. He has made so many good bets that his absolute worst case scenario on his 1,000 trials, because we're just we're just excluding death, because there's a lot of trials, he's old as shit. There's a lot of trials where he, he him's dead, but excluding that, his worst possible scenario on his 1,000 trials is actually better than my best case right now. Think about that. So we don't know fucking anything about what the future will bring. Corona, my back injury, anything. But if you can, over time, climb your way higher and higher to the next higher simulation, Annie Duke might just say that you have found the secret to winning in poker and life. Hoo-wee! Well, goddammit, heifers, that's a lot. So if I'm gonna summarize for you, highest level, 80-20 principle, the mere fact of recognizing that life is like poker, not chess, is a life-changing idea. No longer is your task to perfectly plan out your entire life, rather make the bet with the highest expected value based on the available information while ruthlessly appraising yourself, an accountability group can help, to make sure that you're being rational. Don't give in to your irrational, emotional, animalistic nature. And if you have to, shackle yourself down with structures to force optimal decision-making. Because poker teaches us to take satisfaction in trying our best. The outcome won't always work out, but on the aggregate, over the long term, if our bets are the best they can be, We will fucking claw our way up the great Monte Carlo simulation of life because as Annie Duke most famously mic dropped, the quality of our lives is the sum of decision quality plus luck. What? And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out. CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.